This is Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. Hello, thank you for tuning in. I'm Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. And here, as ever, to unearth the inspiring, instructive, and highly practical wisdom of a Torah passage with a fellow seeker of biblical truth. Rabbi David Cohen is a rabbi and an attorney who is now working with Yachad to address the needs of all Jewish individuals with disabilities to ensure their inclusion in every aspect of Jewish life. He also serves as the rabbi of Congregation Or Torah in North Woodmere, New York, which was the shul founded by Rabbi Theodore and Esther Youngrice, a graduate of Columbia Law School and of the University of North Texas, where he studied couple dynamics, Rabbi Cohen also has a therapy practice in the five towns. He is the author of We're Almost There, Living with Patience, Perseverance, and Purpose, and has written for many Jewish magazines and periodicals. Rabbi Cohen, welcome to The Rabbi's Husband. Mark, thank you so much for having me as your guest. I'm looking forward to our discussion. Me too, and I'm very excited about your passage because I can't wait to see what you, given such an interesting and diverse background, have to say about it. This passage is probably of interest to everybody, and it's Genesis 2.24, so I'll let you tell everybody, what is Genesis 2.24, and why is it significant to you? So it's actually an amazing passage, of course. It talks about the creation of Chava, of Eve, fashioned from a piece of man, from Adam himself. And then, right after that amazing episode, so the Torah basically says, that a, an individual has to leave their parents' home and the man clings to his wife, that they, they become one. Now, I heard an amazing interpretation of this verse many years ago. It's not my interpretation, but I've adopted it because it's very, very meaningful to me. And it goes as follows. Psychologically, and I do a lot of work with couples, there's a concept of individuation, of basically separating from our parental home and clinging to our spouses, the verse suggests. So when you leave your parents, the idea could be that the parental child dynamic is that our parents take care of us. So when we're children, we're receivers. We're on the receiving end. Our parents are the givers. The verse is communicating. Then when we make this transition to maturity, to life, to sharing with another, whatever that you know, may look like for different people, different relationships, but the idea is we have to leave that childish mentality of when we're being taken care of by our parents and we have to pivot to becoming parent-like when we're davak to an equal, to a partner, so we now have to assume that position of being the giver as opposed to the childlike taker. Very interesting. Now, there are 70 faces to the Torah, so there are multiple interpretations, each of which can be true. Mine was different, so Erica and I would host, back when such things were possible, Shabbat dinners for 50 or 60 singles, half men, half women, and I would get up and read this passage and make the point, I didn't invite any of your parents tonight. On the basis of this, I said, I didn't invite your parents on principle, because when you get married, the Bible tells us you should leave your father and mother and cling to your wife and become one. And I think it's a very practical lesson for parents of marriage age children, which is saying, let go. It must have been a problem in biblical days of parents remaining too involved in the lives of their married children. Incredible. Some things never end, but this must have been a persistent problem in ancient times for it to warrant a prohibition in early Genesis. And here God comes in the Torah and says, young man, leave your father and mother and start a new home. In other words, you can, of course, keep that relationship, but here you're starting a sacred unit. 
You can have alliances and relationships with other units, but this is your unit. You know, it makes a tremendous amount of sense if we just think about it even quantitatively. Right? Most, again, marriage age diverges for different demographics and different communities. But let's say, just let me make the assumption that people get married between 20 and 35, generally speaking, most people. So if you think about it, most of the time, you know, at least till 18, 19, 20, you've spent with your parents, assuming a, a relatively stable, healthy environment. So here you are, you've spent so much time with a family of origin. Ideally, it's a healthy family. It's a happy family. Now you certainly in, in more ultra-Orthodox circles, you, you meet somebody, you know her or you know him for a month, two months, three months. It's not easy. And therefore, like you're pointing out, the Torah needs to accent that because here's a new person. I barely know them in certain circles. And I have to be taught that, you know, it's still a tremendous value that you're supposed to individuate. You're supposed to mature. And I think what you're alluding to as well, and that you see this in a lot of couple dynamics that are complex, you have families that are overreaching or that the members of the couple don't have the requisite allegiance to each other, and they're still too attached to where they come from. And that's, you know, very, very unhealthy. And if- Is that what you see in your therapy practice? Is that a common problem? Every situation is uniquely different. You know, there are all different types of problems that couples can experience, particularly during COVID. We've seen a lot of, you know, complexity come out. But certainly in early years of marriage, and I wrote about this in my book as well, in early years of marriage, you do see a lot of issues that are connected to families of origin, in-law overreaching, particularly if people aren't financially independent and they're taking resources from parents, in-laws, what types of strings come with that? You know, again, ideally parents just give and give and give because they're very altruistic, but people are complex and people often want things in return for that giving. And that can also create complexity and dynamics. So who do you think 224 is addressed to? Is it addressed to the parents or to the young man and woman in the sense that who is creating the problem? Is it the overreaching parent or is it the reaching back child? That's a great question. I think the Torah is talking to whoever it's relevant to in, in each particular situation. Sometimes it's a message that maybe resonates more with the parents. Sometimes it's a message that maybe resonates more with the child. But overall, it's, it's the Torah is communicating to us an ethic that for a period of time, we're supposed to be in one particular place and have fidelity towards that dynamic or that nuclear family as the priority. But then as we evolve in life, so things change, things, things have to evolve, things have to grow, things can't stay stagnant, and our relationships have to change at different periods of time. We can't always, parents can't see their kids the way they were when they were little in their house, and vice versa. Children have to become parents and can't always remain you know, childlike. So when you're counseling in your couple's therapy practice, when you're counseling a parent who's, let's say, in violation of 224, why? Shouldn't it be a parent's greatest joy that their son or daughter marry a lovely person and create their own Jewish home and... God willing, start having lots of kids. And I mean, shouldn't that be like, uh, I made it, I've done it, this is awesome. Like I am happy for everyone's sake that the days of my child being 5, 15 or whatever are over and now he or she is on their own and this is great and I'm gonna bless him. Ideally, yes, but that presumes that all parent-child dynamics are the way they should be a priori. And that's not necessarily the case. In many instances, the 10 or 15-year-old child is actually the parent in the relationship with the 40 and 50 year old. Unpack that. That's fascinating. What do you mean by that? There are people that, again, this is very cyclical. It kind of gets passed down generation to generation. And you have a lot of families that were not critiquing, just observing, you know, Holocaust survivors and terrible trauma experienced. And then they could look at the children as having to fill their own needs. You know, a lot of parents, not, not all, but there are people that, that are very narcissistic and have flaws and character, sometimes for no reason or fault of their own but they then manipulate that child relationship. Instead of being the giver, they become the taker from their child. So then when their child 
graduates and moves on or moves away from them. So it's like, wait a second, you know, you're supposed to take care of me, the parent, you can't go take care of somebody else, so on and so forth. And that can be nasty, frankly. Right. And you know, one of the interesting things about when something's prohibited in the Bible, I think it's a proxy for how prevalent it was at the time. So the most frequent prohibition in the Bible, I think the most frequent commandment is do not fear 80 times in the Torah. It's not like nobody was fearing. That means everybody was fearing all kinds of things, which is why it warrants such a ubiquitous prohibition. You know, similarly, it says love the stranger in one variation of the 36 times. It never says love your children because you don't need to be commanded to do it. It's just so natural and so obvious. If I can interject, it's an interesting point you're making. I heard you mention, you know, a number of times kind of the historical, potentially historical context. I think it's important to point out this, this verse actually appears at the very beginning of Genesis. Adam was created by God. <laughs> there are no parents or in-laws per se in this particular context that we're talking about at this particular juncture. So it's hard to, you can interpret it how you want to interpret it, obviously, but it's certainly projecting forward in that particular moment in time, even though you may be accurate, you know, it sounds like it's implying, I'm not sure it's a prohibition. That's A, it might just be a, you know, advice, guidance. Uh, yeah, I think it's advice. But I guess this question goes back to how one thinks the Torah came about, right? If one thinks that the Torah came about by a combination of God and people creating the great guidebook for the Jewish people based upon some observation of what was going on, then you'd come to my conclusion that it was, that's a bad thing. Yeah. So it depends on your perspective. Yeah. So I, my coming from a, an Orthodox traditional perspective. So yes, uh, my comment makes more sense in that milieu. But we probably come around to the same place because you would probably say that God is anticipating a problem. Yes. That I would agree that God who understands the nature of his creation better than we ourselves do is definitely giving guidance. At this critical moment of the first union, he's kind of setting the tone for what's to come. So I agree with you 100%. Right. So whether he's observing it or anticipating it, it comes to the same conclusion. It almost doesn't matter. Is this the first bit of marital advice given in the Torah? I think that's correct. Yeah. Right. The marriage was just, as you said, just happened one birth ago. Well, actually a little bit earlier than that, you know, in the creation of man, the Torah says, it's not good for man to be by himself. That's like the first piece of advice, in essence, is that man or woman shouldn't be alone. But that wasn't marital advice. That was the reason for marriage, right? Well, maybe it was because it says it's not good for man to be alone, but then it says, I will make you not a helpmate, but a help against yourself. Advising the spouse, your role is to be a help against him or her. That's another one of my favorites and that there's a lot of insight there as well in terms of the dynamics and how we're not supposed to be yes people or we're supposed to challenge and we're supposed to push. So yeah, these are all kind of essential, basics, foundational concepts to Jewish marriage, 100%. Now, what do you make of the fact, if I'm reading the Hebrew right, and it's entirely possible I'm not, that 224 says, therefore, a man shall leave his mother and father. It doesn't say, therefore, a woman shall leave her mother and father. Why is the guidance or the prohibition or the directive or whatever we call it directed to the husband and not the wife, if I'm reading it correctly? No, you are reading it correctly. It's interesting. So at first, I would have maybe argued Textually, it's saying, okay, Yazav Ish, Ish could be a person, it doesn't necessarily have to mean a man. But then the second part of the clause is the Davak Ishto. So that clearly is talking about the man clinging to his wife, which the implication would be that maybe parents and boys or men vis a vis their parents have more of this type of issue. I'd have to think that through further. I don't have that you know, figured out. But the implication would be that the attachment problem is more prevalent with the Jewish parent to his or her son than to his or her daughter who may detach and join the new union more easily and better than her husband. By the way, there is a Talmudic source for that in the sense that the Talmud comments in Masechah Ketubot and other places 
meaning that a, a woman, her nature is such that she'd rather be with somebody of the lower rungs of society, but be with somebody else. Meaning the Talmud does point to this idea that women are more open to marriage and therefore are less, maybe less clingy in this context. But I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a thousand percent confident saying that this is accurate, that men definitely have this issue more than women. I don't know if that proves out in reality, but I... But it is interesting that it's directed because it could have easily said, therefore, a spouse. Is there a Hebrew word for spouse? Yeah, probably is. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, I agree. The text is definitely pointing more towards one member of the couple. I can't deny that. What the explanation of that is or why that is, so that I think is open to interpretation. Yeah, well, that's one of the infinitely awesome things about the Torah, right? Is that the more you study a verse, the more questions it arouses. And then the more you think you have answered, the more questions come out of that. So... No, this has been great. You've already asked me a number of questions about it that I, you know, that really, frankly, haven't thought about. Oh, well, thank you. That's uh, gratifying to hear. What does it mean by one flesh? I mean, they shall become one flesh. Is there some meaning to the Hebrew word for flesh that we should try to unpack? So, I mean, there's a great story about Ravari Levine, that Sadik of Yerushalayim, the righteous man. It's a pretty well-known story that... The one foot? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, please tell that. I love that story. I actually put that in my forthcoming book on the Haggadah. I love that story. I, I'm so glad you brought it up because I think that story illustrates what a marriage should be about. It's about Ravaria Levine, but it could be about you know, any person who goes about marriage in the right way. He would go to the doctor and his wife was having pain and he would say, our foot hurts. I think what the Torah is saying here is that the goal of the process of the whole marriage over many, many years is to reach this high level where we really feel each other, like we really want. The Talmud says, Ishto kugufo. You made a fair point that there is a certain emphasis more from the man. It's a man-dominant world. In that sense, you see that a lot, that you know, people feel that issue that Talmud is kind of unfair or portrays women in a negative light. I mean, I've heard that critique before, and that's a whole separate uh, discussion. Anyone who makes that critique, I would say, then let's talk about the daughters of the love of God. No, I hear it. No, 100%. But again, it's, it's ishto kigufo. Like it, even that phraseology is his wife is like his body. It doesn't say that ish kigufa, again, here, like in this verse that we began talking about, the emphasis is more on the alkenyaz of ish. Again, the emphasis always seems to be on the male side of it. But my point being that you see this idea that husband and wife are supposed to be viewed as one goof, as one flesh. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah, so that's what Ari Levine was talking about. We are one flesh. When he went to the doctor and he said, our foot hurts, he wasn't trying to make a point or be clever. To him, her foot was his foot. If it hurts her, it hurt him just the same. And that's what I wrote in the book, that there's no real Jewish notion of independence. There's a notion of interdependence. When you have a deep partnership with somebody, with God, with your wife, even in business, you don't think about mine and hers, not in a political, it's just ours. It just, just becomes ours and it's interdependent. I don't know about you, but I live in an assisted living facility. I couldn't live without all the other people around me doing all the kinds of things that, you know, it's, I live in it, but that's the way we all should live, right? There's no notion of, there shouldn't be a notion of independence. It seems like if you, one enters a marriage with the notion of there's mine and there's hers, or there's hers and there's mine, there's going to be problems. You got to have the attitude of Ari Levine. We can unpack this. I mean, first of all, it's interesting because psychologically, the term codependent is usually used as a negative, which is interesting. But interdependent, which is the term that you use, is, is interesting. I think, look, this is a very lofty level. That's the Torah setting out the marriage ideal. This is not something that happens overnight. I mean, I don't think it would be normal to get married to somebody and all of a sudden that takes, I think, a lot of years of investment and sacrifice and building and the feeling gets deeper and deeper over time. I think it's something to aspire toward. I think it's something that we're trying to create. I don't think it just kind of happens by itself. We're married by definition now. Your, your leg is my leg, so on and so forth. I remember many years ago, I lived in Manhattan and the Upper West Side, I was counseling a couple 
And they got married a little bit older and they both were financially independent and successful. And they came to me asking, Rabbi, what do you think about you know, not merging our bank accounts or keeping independent bank accounts? And I thought it was very telling in the sense that part of being married is sharing. You, know, you, you kind of have to put that aside. Like from a financial perspective, one of them comes into the marriage with millions of dollars stocked away and the other one has debt and loans. I mean, you're getting married now. now I understand there are people have there are all different types of situations and people could have prenuptials and different things like that. Well, and the ketubah is a prenup, isn't it? Yeah, on some level. Yeah, it's an ancient prenup. It's not going to help you too much, unfortunately, from a financial standpoint. No, but there are a lot of obligations and guarantees that the spouses contractually obligate as a lawyer, right? It's a pretty nuanced and comprehensive set of spousal obligations that one incurs when one gets married and signs. Yeah, it's more geared from the husband toward the wife, interestingly enough, in terms of his responsibilities toward her, as opposed to delineating you know, hers towards him. It's not really focused on that as much. Right. But you know, it's, it's interesting about how long this takes to develop in a marriage. I mean, all right. So when Ari Levine, that story happened, I think it was the late 60s. He'd been married for a long time. But let's say a couple, God willing, gets married whenever they do. And God willing, she gets pregnant quickly. Right. And then God forbid, there's some complication in the pregnancy, perhaps some pain, perhaps one would expect. In fact, she would expect and should expect him to feel the same pain that she does as much as he can. I mean, obviously the physical pain is, but he should be just as pained by what pains her in the pregnancy and just as joyous by what makes her joyous. Even by that point, there should be no notion of, well, like she's suffering, but you know, that's, that's her. And actually you don't see that. You see most men feeling as their wives do in that moment. I'll be a little personal if I may. You know, mentioned in the introduction that, that I work for an organization that, that supports special needs children. The reason I got involved with that was because our eldest child was born with a disability with Down syndrome. And we're about 15 months into married life. And my wife gives birth to our first child. He has a pronounced disability that he will have for the rest of his life. And how well do we really know each other, my wife and I? Again, we dated for a short period of time, maybe six months before we married. Now we're married for another 15 months. We have a child together. And frankly, it brought us closer together. That was kind of like the impetus that kind of began deepening. Thank God I'm married for I don't know, 17 years, et cetera, almost. But it's a process. You could say yes, you know, yeah, the husband feels like the wife's pain, but the answer is no. <laughs> I think not. You know, I think you can say that conceptually, but your wife is pregnant. She's the one who has the aches and the pains and and you can say all you want. You know, it's it's our baby and we're having a baby, but and we're pregnant. People say we're pregnant now. My wife, thank God, we had four children, and uh, I never said we're pregnant because she was pregnant. And it looks very difficult, I mean, to be pregnant. But I do think it's a great bit of marital counseling. And, you know, whether it's in a formal context from a rabbi or clergy person to a young couple or just any other way to kind of get to Ari Levine, right? Get to where it's our foot, however long it takes in, in whatever stage, like that's where you want to go. So, like anything else, the sooner you can get to where you want to go, the better. I think that's right. I think it takes different amounts of time for each couple. There's a beautiful idea from Rav Shlomo Dolby, who was one of the great Jewish thinkers in Jerusalem. I actually named my eldest child after him. There's a concept in the Torah called Shana Rishona, right? It comes in, in Dvarim at the end of the Torah, the idea that the first year of kind of maktish dedication, whether you bought a new house, you different things that are new and you're supposed to consecrate and spend time not going to war, etc. So explained that that year is not a quantitative period of time. He explained it, that it's a, a qualitative concept. It could mean different amounts of time for different people. But like you're saying, the goal is that whatever amount of time it takes you in your unique marital situation, 
you need to individuate, we'll bring it back to how we started, you need to individuate from your family of origin. You keep strong relationships with them, but you have to kind of understand your new priorities and you have to kind of deepen that connection. Life is not about us. And that's how I started giving that interpretation I gave. We have to each learn to kind of pivot away from self-centeredness and look at the others. That's having a spouse, that's having children. That's kind of pivoting away from when we're a child, our parents ideally focus on us and we take and we take and we take. But as we mature, we have to learn to you know, expand and to give and to connect. Another beautiful idea that I always love is the word ani. The word ani, I, Aleph represents one. Yud is 10, which represents community. Expansion from Aleph from one to 10. And Nun, 50, represents the Nun Shari Mobina, represents the 50 different stages of wisdom. Number 50 in Judaism, we know, is, is tremendous with packed, with pregnant, with meaning. 50 or 40? Well, 40 is two, but 50 is seven times seven is 49, which is the normal cycle of Teva, plus one exactly is, is this idea of 50, Shavuot, etc. So this is the idea. Somebody pointed out to me that for those who were in the Daf Yomi cycle, that we had Daf Nun, the 50th Daf of Masechah's Erevin was the Daf that we had in Yom Kippurim. Yom Kippurim is the day, you know, which is above this world. It's Nun. But the idea is that a person, an individual has to be able to bind himself or herself to the community, to others. And it takes a lot of wisdom and a lot of work to be able to see oneself not as disparate from the community, but part and parcel of a familial, a nuclear family, a unit, or, or broadening that to the broader Jewish people, all of the world, all these different levels of connection. That's part of the growth process and metamorphosis of human life. I think it's so important, though, is actually a, a pastor was giving a sermon on the book of Jonah when he made the point that everyone is a philosopher, everyone's a theologian. And I think that's absolutely right. And here's an application of it. However long it takes someone to get to Rabbi Levine's position, and I don't think it should take that long, you're only going to get there if you make a philosophical commitment to get there before you start. So if you enter a marriage and you say, a man needs a woman like a fish needs a bicycle, you're never going to get there. If you call your marriage a partnership, you're never going to get there. And that's even a misunderstanding of when people say we're partners. True business partners, actually, the prosperity of the enterprise is inherently shared. There's no notion of I'm doing well and he or she is not. But it's only when it's a commitment to get to where the hurt, the injury of the foot is equally shared by both of us. Anyone's ever going to get there how long as it is. And if they enter with a notion that we should be independent and we're in partnership, not a comprehensive partnership, but we're in partnership to have a child or to have companionship or to have whatever, they're never going to get there. There's a difference between a marriage and a partnership. It's like when people say we're partners, well, are you spouses? I feel like I've heard many people differentiate between the first marriage versus the second marriage. And, and the reality is that, you know, sadly, many, many marriages don't survive or don't make it. And many marriages that do survive are still fraught with complication and unhappiness. And I think you're detailing exactly why. When I deal with couples who sit before me, more often than not, you will hear this kind of individualistic kind of perspective of, of she's not meeting my needs or he's not meeting my needs. And it's not a priori with the perspective of how do we create this oneness that we've described that Ravaria Levine so beautifully exhibited, a lot of it does depend on orientation and mentality. And a lot of that goes back to how we were brought up and what we observed in our families of origin in terms of what marriage looked like, so on and so forth. It's all kind of interconnected. Is what you're saying that when they come in there and they say, he's not meeting my needs or she's not whatever, if they read 224, they would see very clearly from the text, it's not about my needs or her needs, it's about one flesh's needs. So we're creating one flesh. It's a new unit called a new person, whatever. It's one flesh. That is the relevant entity. (laughs) I think that's ideal. With the caveat and the understanding that I use the example about different marriages, like a lot of people, you hear them say, like first marriage, they were looking for the one fleshness, for compatibility. They're looking for 
financial stability, so on and so forth. So with the acknowledgement that not everybody is, I don't know how to say this, looking or living with the depth that the Torah ideally is suggesting that will lead to the greatest level of happiness. I think the purpose of Torah on some level is to lead us to a, a perfection or the ideal way to live. Not everybody can tap into every aspect of it. So I think it's an ideal. I think some people get there, some people are on the path, and some people aren't looking to. Right. But the Torah gives us that ideal, and it's our opportunity and our blessing to take it. It's right there, one flesh. And I'm so glad you brought it out. So thank you for such a fascinating discussion about this awesome passage that should be the basis of all Jewish and maybe Gentile marital counseling, because it is such an eternal truth. Now, the concluding question always goes from um, one text, the sacred text of the Bible, to uh, another text, which is Andre Malroux's 1968 book, Anti-Memoir. In the book, on the first page, he says, I just ran into a man with whom I served in the war. And he said, this man had saved a lot of Jews and then had become a parish priest. So I said to the priest, in all of your years of hearing confessions, what are two things that you've learned about mankind? And the priest said, one, everyone is much less happy than he seems. And two, there is no such thing as a grown-up person. So in all of your years as a rabbi, a counselor, and an attorney, we didn't even talk about your experience in the Beit Din, the Jewish court, which must have been so interesting. What are two things that you've learned about mankind? That's a fascinating question. And the, you mentioned the Beit Din. I mean, you see really the, sadly, often the worst of people, you know, in the context of an adversarial, litigious context, and when people feel, you know, affronted or wronged. And as a rabbi of a community, you could sometimes see the uh, more negative sides of people. At the same time, I think at the core, you know, we talk about the idea of the pintaliyid, like that little spark, and it goes beyond the yid. I love the Lubav Chereva. I live very close to his uh, Ohel, his burial place. And I think he talked so much about the idea of universalism that, you know, it's not just about the Jewish people. I've seen some of the work that you do. I see that, you know, you care deeply and you're trying to make an impact in Africa and other places. And it goes way beyond just the Jewish world. I think at the end of the day, there is goodness in everybody. And sometimes you have to dig very deep to unearth it and to uh, discover it and to find it. But it's there over the most coarse people or, or the roughest people. There's usually a lot of pain. There's usually a lot of reason if you care to dig deep enough to understand why people behave the way they do. If one's invested in trying to find the beauty in every person, I think one can do that. And I think that's very, very encouraging. I think you see a lot of, despite, you know, we live in tumultuous times and there's a lot of crises and there's a lot of friction and there's a lot of dissension. And, but I think at the core, there's so much more that unifies us and divides us. And I really enjoy the opportunities to discuss things with people that maybe, you know, I don't necessarily see eye to eye on everything, but there's beauty in that. So I think that's one thing that I definitely appreciate. Another thing that I think I've learned over time is like, you kind of have to make your own muscle. Each person is given a limited amount of time here on this earth and to sit back and wait for things to come your way. And sometimes, you know, we're fortunate that things happen and we're in the right place at the right time. But I think more often than not, we have to kind of create, let's say create our own muscle or create our own opportunities or openings, or I love that concept of like networking with people, you know, going on a podcast, meeting new people, building new relationships. Like you never know where things are going to take you in life, what new perspectives you're going to have. It kind of dovetails with the first thing I'm saying. So in this new year, we have, you know, we all have an opportunity to raise our game and make new things happen for ourselves, new dreams, new ambitions, but we do have to kind of put one foot forward. We kind of have to put in the effort. We can't just sit back and hope things are going to happen to us in this new year. We have to really take initiative and make things happen. If we put in the work, we can see great things. I love to grow. I love to, I don't want to say I love to fall short, but I like the challenge of 
falling short and feeling I can do better and pushing myself to do that. You know, we all can make things happen for ourselves and for other people. We just have to put in the effort to have to show up. That's right. You know, and you said just be you, but just a little better. And that reminds me of what the Kutzker Rebbe said. He would say to his students, how far is it from east to west? And they would say, oh, Jerusalem's thousands of miles. He would say, no, it's one step. <laughs> right. That's beautiful. I do study the Talmud daily and it's an ocean. They call it the Yama Talmud and it's overwhelming, but that's the idea. Just like one page a day, like bite off small pieces and uh, it applies to everything. You know, Rome wasn't built in a day, but you got to be on the right path and you got to be moving in the right direction. And a Jewish story never ends. That's why Moses doesn't get to the promised land. So just one step every day and just know uh, you're going to die unfulfilled and that's okay. <laughs> that's one way to look at it. That's for sure. <laughs> so uh, Rabbi Cohen, thank you for such a fascinating discussion about so many things emanating from this terrific biblical passage, which I'm so glad that you chose. Thank you so much for this opportunity. I really enjoyed it and I appreciate the food for thought that you've given me as well. Thank you. If you're enjoying this episode, I hope that you'll sign up for the Rabbi's Husband newsletter, which includes book giveaways from our podcast guests, my weekly column on Christian Broadcasting Network, inspiring updates from United Hatzalah and African Mission Healthcare, and a behind-the-scenes look at my upcoming book published by St. Martin's Essentials, The Telling, How Judaism's Essential Book Reveals the Meaning of Life. You can sign up at therabbishusband.com or feel free to email daniel at therabbishusband.com.